you're listening to the Sunday Morning Sermon from First Baptist Church Seminole, Oklahoma. Our responsive reading today comes from the Baptist Hymnal number 699. How good and pleasant is it when brothers live together in unity. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For everything was written in the past, was written to teach us. So that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Finally, brothers, aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Our children are dismissed to Jam Children's Church, led by always wonderful and faithful servants of the Lord. Always so thankful for those that do such a great job with our children during this time to teach them in the ways of the Lord. I call your attention this morning to Joshua and chapter 22. Joshua and chapter 22, we will be considering the narrative about the two and a half tribes of Israel that are returning to their land east of the Jordan River. But the narrative is long, and the key text we're going to look at this morning is found in chapter 22, verses 9 through 12. I want to start this morning by sharing a story from Asian cultures, or the Asian culture, but if you know anything about Asian culture, there's many contexts for the Asian culture, even within the Asian community. The first time I went to China was 2008. I would make nine returning visits over the next seven years. I really grew to love my Chinese friends that I was serving with um, and were considered brothers and sisters and to their children was considered uncle. Many of you actually got to meet uh, some of those uh, when Jason and Ashley were here a few years ago with their son, David. They were here at First Baptist Church, and they shared testimony. Anyway, I'll never forget the, the first trip in 2008 when I learned that all of the Chinese students starting in kindergarten, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Starting in kindergarten, I've already talked a lot today so far, so I may have to take a couple drinks along the way. In, a, in, in China, at, uh, starting in kindergarten, they all begin to learn the English language. And by the time they are 
10, 11, 12, they're ready to start using that on people that know English. And so when we got there in 2008, I was surprised at how many of them wanted to try out their English on the Americans that were there. One of the first phrases that I heard them try always is, hello, my name is. And in kindergarten, they all get to pick their, an English name. So it's not their Chinese name given by their parents. They get to pick an English name to use through their English studies. And so they would just pick the funnest names. And uh, so they would say, hello, my name is, and they would give you their English name. But one of the second phrases that they loved to use is actually a phrase that comes from the Asian culture. And that is called same, same, but different. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. It's very, very popular in all Asian communities. Same, same, but different. In fact, if I wasn't, I was going to put this shirt on this morning, but I'm wearing a sweater and I'm already going to sweat to death because uh, that's what happens when I preach. But uh, the shirt, same, same, but different. Okay? Very, very popular uh, phrase in Asia. I did not understand this term until one of the college students who was from our church that was with us who had spent uh, four months in Laos a couple of years before told me the history of this phrase. The origins of the phrase, same, same, but different, is from Thailand. Um, it was a phrase that the Thai people came up with to relate to English-speaking people. You see, in Asia, there are thousands of dialects within each country. In China alone, there are 150 different Chinese languages just in China. And so it's a phrase in Asia that would pop up a lot as they would say, same, same, but different. We may speak a different dialect, but we're same, same. And so this phrase became very popular, and uh, soon it became a way for Thai people to relate to English-speaking people that would visit Thailand. They would say, we may speak different languages, but and do some things different in our culture, but same, same, but different. And uh, you can see this phrase all over the internet. There's all kinds of merchandise that sells this phrase. So they had turned this phrase onto the Western world, and it was basically a way of saying there are some things about us that are different, but in reality, we are the same. Now, this became particularly true for Chinese Christians. As we met them and worked with them, they really embraced this phrase. It became an expression of Christian love and unity. We are very much different in ways of culture, but we are very much the same because of Christ Jesus. Same, same, but different. Now, I want you to think about that as we go through this narrative today. Same, same, but different. Because here we are in chapter 22, and chapter 22 is a very important chapter. Not that not the other ones aren't, but chapter 22 is very important because it's the beginning of the end of the Joshua narrative. So the vast majority of all the conquests are over. They have taken the land, and the Lord has given them permission to divide up the land and take their inherited land from all of the different 12 tribes. So... What's happening at the beginning of chapter 22 is that Joshua is commending those two and a half tribes 
that came from the east side of the Jordan. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how there were two and a half tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh that were given their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. And that's where they would, would receive their inheritance and live. But as Israel made its conquests on the west side of the Jordan, Joshua asked that those two and a half tribes would also send their soldiers to help the conquests on the other side. And so these soldiers joined all of Israel in the conquests on the west side. <clears throat> and so this is... The, the chapter 22 starts with Joshua basically commending them on behalf of the Lord for their commitment to God's people. Now remember, it's been 50 years. 50 years they've been working on these conquests. Many of these soldiers, all of these soldiers, they started out as young soldiers and they were going home as old men. Worn and beaten from battle. They've been away from their families, years away from their families, an entire generation almost by today's standards, away from their families. So this is kind of a, chapter 22 starts with kind of a farewell uh, retirement party from Joshua. Basically, he's like, guess what? The pension has come through. Your inheritance has come through. You get to go home and enjoy that inheritance, enjoy that retirement. You get to enjoy it in the Lord with all of the blessings. And so they did. Those two and a half tribes left and went back to their new land that had been given to them by the Lord. To be worry-free and enjoy the blessings and enjoy the Lord. So that's where we get to verses 9 through 12. So that's the setup. So if you would stand with me as we honor the Lord at the reading of this text and ask the Lord to give great consideration to our spirits today. Starting in verse 9. The Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in the land of Canaan to return to their own land of Gilead which they took possession of according to the Lord's command through Moses. When they came to the region of the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh built a large, impressive altar there by the Jordan. The Israelites heard it said, Look, the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh have built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan at the region of the Jordan on the Israelite side. When the Israelites heard this, the entire Israelite community assembled at Shiloh to go to war against them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you be kind and give us favor today as we look at your holy word. It's in Christ and we pray. All God's people said. <clears throat> well... Sometimes things turn quickly. <laughs> Here they are, one big happy family. The next thing you know, in three quick verses, they're going to go to war with each other. Things turn quickly. And we, know, we understand this. We understand how, understand how both trivial things turn quickly and serious things turn quickly. 
Sometimes they're as trivial as things turning really quickly, kind of like that OU-USC game that happened a number of years ago. Everybody, oh, OU's the greatest team. Whoa, 59 to 19, whatever it was. That turned quickly. I had to bring that up. I love that story. Or, on a more serious note, civil unrest. We've spent several years in this country looking at some pockets of civil unrest. Man, things turn quickly. And sometimes it shocks us. Sometimes we should have expected it because of what we did or what we said. But sometimes it shocks us. But all over the world, things turn really quickly in, in societies. And all of a sudden, there's civil unrest. Things turned quickly when Japan attacked America at Pearl Harbor. All of a sudden, we were onlookers into the great Second World War. And then all of a sudden, things changed quickly at that point. We got serious about what was going on. So things do change quickly, and we understand that. But this is what's interesting. Just like that, Israel has a new enemy. They've had these enemies all along the way that they have been fighting against and securing victory over. But now Israel has a new enemy, and the enemy to Israel is Israel. Well, there's two and a half tribes that have an enemy of Israel from the nine and a half tribes on the other side of Israel. So it's two and a half versus nine and a half. Those aren't good odds, right? But the people were set to wage war. But here is the key point to this. Israel was set to wage war on Israel. Israel was set to wage war on their own house. In their own family. This is family turning on family. This is, in New Testament terms... The church turning on the church in an instant. One big happy family, go grab your pitchfork. Some of you have been at some Thanksgiving dinners that are like that. But what is really happening in this narrative here? Is this a case of justified anger? Is this a case of simple confusion? Is this the case of faithfulness or rebellion? Or just divisive theater? Well, it could be any one of those things, or it could be all of those things as we look at the text. One of my favorite movies of all time is Cool Hand Luke. And if you've ever seen the movie Cool Hand Luke, and if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend the movie Cool Hand Luke, played by Paul Newman. He's Luke, and uh, there's a scene in the movie where he's a prisoner, he's in chains, right? And uh, he's just a rebellious guy. He is not going to do what Captain tells him to do. And there's a moment where Captain has to order that he be beaten to learn a lesson. And the famous lines, the top ten most famous lines of all movies historically, there's the scene where Captain comes over and Captain says, what we have here is failure to communicate, right? In other words... I'm saying things that you're supposed to do. You're not doing the things that I've said for you to do. Somewhere along the lines between this year and this year, this year, Luke, you're not understanding what's supposed to happen here. There is a failure to communicate. Now, that scene, as famous as it is, really doesn't tell the whole story. This is more than just failure to communicate. This is something more foundational. This is something more emotional. This is something actually really spiritual that's happening between Israel and Israel. What we have 
is two perspectives from one house. Two perspectives from one house. East versus West. So let's take a look at the two different perspectives. And let's start with the perspective of Eastern Israel, the two and a half tribes that are on the east side of the Jordan. Here's their perspective. It's time for us to go home. So first part of their perspective is they took their leave and they returned home. So think about it like that. This is two and a half tribes are going, okay, you said we could leave, we're leaving, we're going home, and they do. So from also their perspective, as they're going home, they decided to build an altar to the Lord at the Jordan. Now this is quite a journey they've taken. And towards the end of this journey, they say to themselves, we love the Lord, we're going to build an altar to the Lord. All of that seems reasonable. If you're Eastern tribe, you're thinking we were told we could go, we're going home. As we go home, let's not forget to do a couple things. Let's honor the Lord. Let's build an altar to Him. What does this tell us about the tribes to the east? The first thing it tells us is that they made a concern to separate themselves from the Canaanite religion. They wanted to separate themselves from the Canaanite religion. That's why they built the altar to the Lord. It is important to note that there are still Canaanites spread out throughout the land. Remember when we talked about the whole wipe them out, destroy every living thing hyperbole that we see in both Deuteronomy and Joshua? If you don't remember that, let me just briefly go over that again. Throughout the conquests, the Lord will instruct the Israelites that they are to destroy the Canaanites. They are to erase them, wipe them out. In some cases, leave no breathing thing left, right? And, and if, if we're not careful, we can read that with kind of a calloused approach and not understand how the literature is here for us. It's hyperbole. We know that it's hyperbole because of two examples. We know that it's not literal genocide because of two examples. The first in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, the Lord tells, them, tells Moses to destroy the Canaanites to completely eradicate the Canaanites. Yet later he tells them, after this is over, he tells them, the Lord tells them, that they are not to intermarry with the Canaanites or get into business deals with the Canaanites. Well, how can you intermarry and how can you have business deals if they don't exist? Clearly, Deuteronomy 7 was hyperbole eradicate the pagan religion. And the only way to do that is to destroy the Canaanites, not necessarily commit genocide. We also know this because of Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, we are told that nothing was left in the cities they had attacked. But five chapters later, we read that there are Canaanites in some of these cities. Well, how is that possible? If there was nothing left, how are there still Canaanites in these cities, it's because it's hyperbole. The whole point, the eastern tribes, as they returned home, wanted to make it real clear that just as the conquest 
was about eradicating the pagan religion of the Canaanites. Remember, the moral fabric of the Canaanites was gone. They were morally corrupt, and that's why God wanted to end them. Because God was about to send his people into this land that was ruled by the Canaanites. They were morally corrupt and were committing child sacrifice. And the Lord did not want that religion influencing Israel. And so they had to eradicate that pagan religion. And so the whole point with the eastern tribe is, as they journeyed back, they wanted to make it known that they had no relationship with paganism. No relationship with the Canaanite rituals. They were a distinct group of people that belonged to the Lord. So that's the point. They didn't want to be influenced by those pagan religions. Also, they didn't want, uh, second, they wanted to erect a witness to Yahweh for future generations. How do we know this? Because of what they say. If you go on to read in verse 13, so now the, the Israelites are ready to go wage war. They go from Shiloh to go wage war. The Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest of the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead. They sent ten leaders with him, one family leader for each tribe of Israel. All of them were heads of their ancestry families among the clans of Israel. They went to the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead and told them, this is what the Lord's entire community says. So they're unified in this attack. What is this treachery? They call them traitors. You have committed today against the God of Israel by turning away from the Lord and building an altar for yourselves so that you in rebellion, so that you are in rebellion against the Lord today. Wasn't the iniquity of Peor, which brought a plague on the Lord's community, enough for us? We have not cleansed ourselves even from it even to this day. And now you would turn away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the entire community of Israel. But if the land you possess is defiled, cross over to the land the Lord possesses where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take possession of it among us. But don't rebel against the Lord or against us by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Wasn't Akan, son of Zerah, unfaithful regarding what was set apart for destruction? bringing wrath on the entire community of Israel. He was not the only one who punished, who was punished because of his iniquity. So then here's the response. The Reubenites, Gadites, and half tribe answered, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, and may Israel also know. Do not spare us today if it was the, our rebellion or treachery against the Lord that we have built for ourselves an altar to turn away from him. May the Lord himself hold us accountable if we intended to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings on it or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it. We actually did this from a specific concern that in the future, your descendants might say to our descendants, what relationship do you have with the Lord, the God of Israel? So here, not only were they wanting to erect a witness for who they belonged to, they wanted future generations to go same, same, but different. We may be from the east side of the Jordan, and you may be from the west side of the Jordan, but we all belong to the same God. 
They were thinking about future generations that would come in contact with one another. In other words, they're saying, imagine a couple of generations from now, your children decide we're going to go on a journey on the east side of the Jordan. Well, as they come this way, we want them to know that we are the same. We belong to the same God. We worship the one true God. So their perspective from the eastern tribes was not at all to be in rebellion. In fact, in their humility, they say, check our hearts. Let the Lord check our hearts. If our desire was to do burnt offerings at this altar, then we're wrong. But that wasn't our desire. You see, to understand more about that context, there was only one place that the Israelites were commanded to erect as a tabernacle to the Lord where they were to give burnt offerings, grain offerings, and fellowship offerings. And we'll get to that here in a second. So, what does this have to do with us Today, this perspective, the east side perspective, well, there's a couple of verses that help us understand why their perspective is important for us today. And the first comes from Jesus' prayer in John 17, 15 through 18, when Jesus says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you send me into the world, I also send them into the world. So in the New Testament, Jesus in his prayer, Jesus prayers that we be sanctified in truth so we are not like the world. Well, this was their perspective. The east side Israelites, their perspective was We don't want to be like the world. We don't want to be like the Canaanites. So let's establish that with a place of worship and witness to the God that we belong to. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes to the church and he says this. Romans 12 verses 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Paul urges Christians to be transformed by God so that they are not like the world. So the east side perspective is very clear. They just don't want to be like the world. They don't want to be pagan. And they definitely don't want any future generation to think that they're pagan. So they erect this. Basically, the east side, same, same, but different. Well, what does it tell us about the tribes on the west? How about their perspective? So we got the east side perspective, right? They're just We're doing what we think we're supposed to be doing. And by the way... They never intended, well, we'll get to that, okay, the the west side. Their perspective is, first and foremost, what we see in the text is that they're not simply looking for a fight within the family. You might read this, and you might read into it somebody that you know. (laughs) There's people in our lives that are just always looking for an excuse to go fight with somebody, even within the family. 
They're always a victim. Everybody's always out to get you or get your family or get your kids or get, you know. And so you're always on edge. You're waiting for that one little trigger word so you can go, all right, here we go. It's like, can you just take, can you just chill out in your life a little bit? Not everybody is against you. That's not their perspective. Their perspective is not, we can't wait for them to go home so that we can pick a fight with them. That's not what they want to do. They're family. So many times we can be quick to make assumptions because we want the fight or we need the fight or we want to be a victim or we need to be a victim. And what happens is it diminishes when there really are victims. So we're always on the offensive, ready to fight. But it doesn't seem like that case here. At least nothing indicates that. Remember, the East tribes were the ones that came and helped them. They've been with them for 50 years. They left their families to be with them to help them in the conquest. They've surely got to appreciate that. Wouldn't you appreciate it? I know I would. When you are doing work in the trenches with other brothers and sisters in Christ, you will come to, eva to value them and have deep affection for them like you never could before. So we have to assume that their intentions were pure until they got this information. The second perspective for the West Side is that they had real zeal for upholding the standard of truth. We see many times that they use the language in their argument here about God's law and God's name in their reaction. They want the truth of Yahweh to be honored. They want the tabernacle and the altar of the Lord to have integrity within the whole assembly. You see... In Joshua chapter 18, all of Israel ag agrees by the command of the Lord to erect a tabernacle, the one place of worship where burnt offerings, grain offerings, and fellowship offerings will happen. So all of Israel knows this. All of Israel knows this is the one tabernacle. And so when West Side Israel hears about a new altar... Their assumption is they're going to do grain offerings and fellowship offerings and burnt offerings there. They know better than that. So their zeal to uphold the truth of what God has instructed them is what caused them to make this assumption. The third perspective for the West Side is actually really, really good for us to pay attention to. They showed prudence. To send spiritual leaders to inquire. Yeah, they, they may have gone with their weapons. They may have gone ready to wage war. But before they were going to strike a sword against their brothers and sisters. They sent Phineas, the priest. And other spiritual leaders with Phineas. To ask the right questions. Those questions were in the form of an assumption. But they asked questions. They took time to inquire what is going on here? Before I hurt you, I'm going to ask some questions. I want to understand. Westside Israel said, as angry as they were, 
They said, before we hurt our brothers and sisters, we better get to the bottom of this. There are some deep implications for the church today that oftentimes we don't show that same prudence. We assume the worst of our brothers and sisters. We hear something about a brother or sister. We hear something that was said from one person to another person and then back to us. And we get angry. And before we inquire, we go to action. We start doing things. We start moving some pieces and talking to some people and and doing things. And we eventually hurt our brother or sister in Christ before we've actually gotten to the bottom of what's going on. And 99% of the time, it is a failure to communicate. Just a misunderstanding. Ultimately, that's what we have in this text. A misunderstanding. You got two parts, two perspectives of the same family wanting the same thing. They all want to move in the same direction with the Lord. And an assumption can ruin all of it. So thank the Lord that they showed prudence and asking questions because if you keep reading what they decide is they all decided they were family and it was just a misunderstanding and they agreed on the altar because it wasn't the same kind of altar it wasn't the one altar where there were going to be offerings and so they come to an agreement and they're at peace what might the New Testament say to the church about these types of of things. Well, Romans chapter 12 gives us some words of encouragement for the New Testament church regarding the same types of things. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it says, If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You might be ready to go to war, you might be ready to defend the tabernacle. And there are times when we absolutely need to be ready to go to war for the Lord and defend the tabernacle and defend the teaching of the Lord. But if at all possible, the Apostle Paul says, do everything you can to live at peace with one another. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul will write to the church in Ephesus and he will say this in verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, With patience, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul says to the church, go the extra mile for unity. Put your dukes down. Sometimes we need to let go of our fists because it's the only way we can shake a hand or hug somebody. But sometimes we're just so tight in our ways and so tight in our assumptions. And this is all people see from us. That's the guy or the woman in the church that just walks around like this, just ready. The Apostle Paul says, no, no, open up your hands, open up your arms, open up your heart to love each other. There are some deep implications 
for raising your kids in this as well. Be careful what you demonstrate to your children in the way that you conduct yourself. Sometimes we think we're fighting a battle that needs to be fought, and while we're doing that, while our dukes are up, our kids are learning something really bad. It's more important to teach your kids how to live at peace with people than how to fight people. Way more important. And how about what Jesus says in John 15, verse 17? He says, these things I command you, that you have love for one another. Let that sink in. West side Israel, east side Israel, have love for one another. If what they did was wrong, and they've erected an altar that's a false altar, a blasphemous altar, then you're right to wage war against them. But if they intended to honor the Lord and not disobey the commands of the Lord, then open up your fists and put your arms around them and greet them as brothers and sisters in Christ. So both what the east side and the west side found was same, same, but different. Different locations, different tribes, same God. I bet you could probably imagine... That there's even still yet a few people on the west side of the tribe that as they're marching home, they're saying to themselves, you know, I still can't believe they did that. I'm sure glad to know them, and I love that they're in our family, but I wouldn't have done that. Not my style, you know. And that's okay. It's okay to be in the same family and go, you know, that's probably not how I would have done it, and that's not really my style. But hey, same, same, but different. Same family, same God. Love you. Let the fist go. So let us take what the scripture gives us today and decide to do the same. Let us first and foremost honor the Lord in his house, in his way, for his glory. Secondly, let us keep ourselves unstained by the world. Set your home as a marker and this assembly as a marker of who you belong to. You belong to the God of creation. You belong to Yahweh, the one true God. May your home be an altar of that, and may this assembly be an altar that gives testimony and witness to that. Three, seek peace with one another, and don't be easily upset. There's no worse of a friend than somebody who's easily upset. No, don't be that friend. Don't force other people to have to manage you. (laughs) Don't force other people to carry that burden of trying to manage your personality because you're always upset. That's no fun for any of us. So live at peace with one another. And for, like my Chinese friends, let's be okay with same, same, but different. As long as the Lord is our first love. Let's be okay with same, same, but different. And what I mean by that is, I understand you have a history. I understand that you have traditions. I understand you have perspective. You have viewpoints. You have considerations in the way that you perceive the world and the way that you believe politically and 
believe civically and all those types of things. But if we can agree on the most important things, as the Apostle Paul will teach the church so many times in his letters, if we can agree on the important things, to love the Lord your God with all your mind, your heart, and your strength, and to serve Him with gladness, and to live at peace with one another, and strive to make the gospel important in the assembly for the hope of the world. Do you want to know why they erected a tabernacle at Shiloh in the middle of Canaanite territory that is now Israelite territory to be a beacon of hope and light to all other nations that Yahweh is the one true God. May that be said of us as God's people. And when we come into potential conflict, might we handle it with prudence and peace? And not seek to destroy one another before we find out what's really going on. And what does this do for us as we move into a time of worship, as our worship leaders come and lead us into a time of worship? A couple of things. One, as you look around this room each and every Sunday, I trust that you look around this room and you see people that you love. People that you care about. People that you want to do life with and serve with and be in the trenches with. And come to their aid when they need aid. Come to their defense when they need defense. That you want the best for the people around you. That you're not looking to see them be hurt so that you can look better. But you want the best for all those around you. And you pray to that end. May we be a people of gladness as we assemble together with that, with that purpose. And, and two... May nobody who ever visits this place be confused by who we belong to and who we're here to worship. May all future generations who see First Baptist Church, may we have the same concern that the East tribes had. That this place is a tabernacle to the one true God. Would you stand with me as we move into a time of worship? Father, we do love you and we trust you. I'm so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gives us new life by being a propitiation for our sins. Our hope is in you. We're thankful for your grace, your mercy, and your kindness. And may we walk in grace and mercy and kindness as we're called to walk and live like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for this assembly. I pray for this group of people. God, I understand that there are people from all different walks of life in this room this morning. But may our bond be a bond of love because we love you first. And may our worship be a deep, eager, affectionate, pattern of worship that is a pleasing fragrance to you. May our voices and our tongues be filled with joy and laughter as we praise you, the one true God. It's in Christ and we pray and all of God's people said.